Hey, I am so glad that you have joined me again today for your follow-up after open heart surgery, and uh, I am so glad that you've prioritized this morning. And so as I've got your chart here this morning, I just want to begin and make sure that you're prepared to understand how life needs to be different now that you've had open heart surgery and a transplant, literally, where God's heart is going to become your heart. I want to remind you that the discussion we've had this whole time has been this. Jeremiah 17, 9 reminds us that the heart is deceitful above all things. The heart is deceitful above all things. Uh, there is no cure. For many of us, we wrestle with this issue and what's going to happen with the heart that we have when I talk about the heart, I'm not literally talking about your physical heart. That's another doctor's responsibility. But in your life, I want you to understand that the heart, the heart is the center of physical, emotional, and spiritual life of humans. Everything flows from this, our motives, our thoughts, our desires, our directives. And so week one, when we sat down about this whole issue, we talked about how we have clogged arteries, clogged arteries. Our hearts need work. That's what we realized, that we're going to have to have surgery. Our health has gotten to a point that things need to change, specifically in our walk with God. Our faith needs to change. And because there are enemies of our heart, these enemies we talked about is both sin and selfishness. It's the habits that lead us in rebellion towards God and the pursuit of self above everything else. Week two, we talked about what open heart surgery was going to look like, and it, we talked about how it's going to be painful, but God can give us all a new heart. But we said if we're going to deal with the source, here's what we need to do. We need to monitor our heart, not our life. Meaning many of us, we look at the surroundings that we're a part of, we look at the circumstances that play out, and we try and fix them or fix that or just work harder or be smarter. But the reality is there's a source inside of us that we need to confront of our own selfishness and our own sin, and our heart before God needs to be changed. You know, the heart transplant uh, process is very scary. Uh, you've been very candid with me about that, and I've tried to be clear about what's going to happen. But the reality is that when you lay on that table and you surrender your life before God, what happens is Jesus comes in and he takes your sinful, prideful heart and removes it and replaces it with his. Now, what's interesting is anytime anyone goes towards open heart surgery, our lives, our bodies are put on a, a heart and lung process where we actually help continue the circulation of your life because without the breath of life going into your lungs on a regular basis, your body does not stay healthy. And I think it's a great picture for us that we need to understand that even in our walk with God, as God is going to transplant our heart, we're going to have a new heart, a new creation, a new heart from Jesus, that what we need to realize is that the breath of God's spirit, his breath of life, must continue to flow through us so that the oxygenated blood can get and bring healing to where it needs to go and the toxic blood can be filtered out and we can begin to live as him. Friends, this week, here's what we're talking about. Here's what we need to understand is that our hearts thrive when they are surrendered to God and not to self. Hearts thrive when they are surrendered to God and not to ourselves. So let me give you a couple of uh, just things that we need to change, a couple of things that I want to put into your life so that you can begin to now use this heart to its fullest. 
And there are two principles that we want to own as we walk out into this new life before friends and before God. Here's the first principle. A healthy heart trusts God. Above all else, a healthy heart trusts God. Now, as a healthy heart, we have to prioritize the things that are going to help us flourish and live the life that God's intended for us. But that means we need to put our trust in God, not more in ourselves. Now, I know you've never been here before. I know having a heart transplant can be concerning, but I will tell you that there is a trust in this process and a trust in the relationship that we need to have. And that's what we need to have before God as well, is a trust that God's plan is best for us. Proverbs 3 says it this way, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit or surrender to him, and he will make your paths straight. An obedient life is a surrendered life. An obedient life to God is a life that God continues to flourish and continues to bless. The second principle I want us to understand is this, though. A healthy heart is a guarded heart, meaning we have to protect it. We need to, we need to change the way that we live, but we also need to be mindful of this new heart is a gift from God. And so we must steward it in a way that every day and every moment of life is lived to its fullest. Proverbs 4 would tell us this. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Now, I want you to imagine this for just a moment, if you will, that you're sitting at a coffee shop, having a, a, a coffee with a friend, eating a bagel, whatever you do. But as you're sitting there in that moment, a policeman walks in and you kind of look at him or her and you see them standing in their uniform. And you'll notice that, you know, they've got the standard issue shoes and pants and shirt. And, you know, they've got, uh, you can see their badges, you can see their weapon, you can see how they're prepared to take on the day. But you'll notice on their chest that they're wearing a vest. A vest to protect the most important portion of themselves, their heart. They may not be covered with something to cover their forearm or their shin, and they may not even be walking in with a helmet or anything on, but they live every moment on duty with this vest covering their chest because they understand how valuable their life is and what they must protect. We need to, as Christians, begin to discern our lives and protect it in a way that God, God's heart now begins to flourish in us and through us. And so there are things that we need to protect from our lives, and that there are things that we need to keep intact, because our hearts will thrive if they're surrendered to God and not to ourselves. So we want to maximize this transplant. We want to treat it as the gift that it is. So if I was your, if I was your medical doctor, and you had just had a heart transplant, there'd be a few things that we'd want to change, right? We would talk about diet. Uh, we would talk about exercise. We would talk about getting proper amounts of sleep. And we would talk about relieving stress, eliminating it, and changing the way that we live our lives. And so I want to give you a real practical conversation today about how your life is going to need to begin to change. And this isn't fixing everything. You'll need to do a follow-up and be here on a regular basis and grow with us as a church. But what I'm going to encourage you in is if one of these four areas that we've begun to address as enemies of our heart, if we have some practical ways to unpack them and correct them, we might be able to flourish not only individually before God and each other, but as a people of God 
before God and the world that we're a part of. So let's grab your chart a little bit again here. Let's pull it up, and let's look at the first one if we can, okay? Uh, let's, look at, uh, let's look at guilt. And when we talked about guilt to begin with, what we talked about here was specifically how, how we live a life that says, I owe you. And when we're talking about guilt, we're talking about the shame aspect. We're talking about the head that's lowered. The reality is in a relationship with Jesus Christ, because of Jesus' death, his burial, his resurrection, we have now been given a new heart, and that heart should lead us towards freedom. Freedom. Free from feeling like we owe anyone or anything because God has made our payment, and we are growing in him. First John would tell us this. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful, meaning God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him, we make God out to be a liar. And his word is not in us. Now, let me give you a couple of just tidbits real quick here, can I? Let me talk to you about confession because the antidote to guilt is being a person of confession to God and to those that you've wronged. Now, that's a challenge. But let me share this. Guilty people are often repeat offenders until they find healing. Confession to God and people uh, is essential for us before people that we've sinned against or wronged and God himself. Asking for forgiveness is really what begins to happen when we confess what we've done wrong. The asking of forgiveness is where the healing begins. Reconciliation and even restoration of those relationships don't instantly happen, but in time can begin to grow and flourish. So let me ask you, where's a good place to live this out? When you think about being a person of confession, to admit your wrongdoing and sin, and to grow and be challenged, not only in being able to ask for forgiveness from those that you've hurt, but to find the courage and strength to move forward, where is a good place for that to be practiced? I would say it's within your group. That's why as a church, we have our groups. I have a men's group that it meets every Monday night, and our desire is to, to grow in the sense of understanding of who we've been created to be on God's behalf and live that authentic life before the men in the room and the relationships that we represent in the world around us. Well, let's keep moving on. We've got a lot to talk about. So let's, let's look at your second chart, and we're going to talk about anger. Can we talk about anger for a moment? Anger is this. It's you owe me. You owe me. Somebody's done something against you, and now you're ready to retaliate back. And I just want to warn you, anger is a great disguise for woundedness and for hurt. And oftentimes we embrace the impulse of anger to kind of, uh, to man up, to courage up, to find the strength to push through. But unfortunately what happens when we, when you, we use anger in less than righteous ways, what we do is we create a pattern of retaliation and lashing out. In the book of Ephesians, there's this conversation about how we have to throw off this falsehood. We've got to get rid of this life that is not who we were created to be. Here's what it says in verse 31. This is going to be a challenge for many of us. Get rid of all bitterness and rage, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. 
Be kind and compassionate towards one another, forgiving one another just as Christ God forgave you. The writer to the Ephesians people is saying this, this Christ, this Messiah who has come to give himself, Jesus, God in the flesh, is inviting us to forgive others as Jesus forgave us. He canceled our debt. You see, when we owe someone, there's this debt and debtor relationship. And before God, we've sinned. We owe our lives back to God. But Christ Jesus gave his life on our behalf that we might be free from that debt. We don't want that debt-debtor relationship with each other. And so uh, let me just give you a couple pieces. I've, I've got a couple of notes here for you in case you struggle with anger. If you hold back waiting for somebody to come back and, and, and correct things with you, it may never happen. Those debts may never be fixed. So what we need to begin to wrestle with is how, how are we going to be a people that can forgive whether people come back to us or not? We can't undo what's been done. We can't control the past, but we can stand in the moment of forgiveness and release those people. Because here's the truth. Holding on to someone's debt. If someone has wronged you and you've been holding on to it, trying to see if they notice, trying to see if they understand, trying to see if they're going to come back around and forgive, find forgiveness. If you hold on to that and they, that forgiveness never comes, you enslave yourself to that debt. Friends, the challenge between confession and forgiveness is in, in confession, we need to be able to ask the very words, will you forgive me? In forgiveness, we need to be the very people that look into those eyes and say, I forgive you. Where's a good place to practice that? Oftentimes, it's in the relationships closest to us. Oftentimes, it's in our home, whether it's a roommate, a family member, a close friend, someone that we spend a great amount of time with. We need to be able to forgive those that have wronged us. And until we can grant forgiveness, anger will continue to consume us. Moving right along, let's look at the third slide. Uh, maybe this one doesn't seem as such a big deal, but I want, I want to talk to you about greed. It's the idea that I owe me. Some of us feel like we're, we've been short-sighted in life and we deserve more than maybe what we've gotten. I get that. But nobody wants to be a stingy person. Nobody wants to hold back from their life. They, we want a generous, flourishing life. So let me just say this. Uh, if I can confess, my wife oftentimes would ask me, hey, do you want to help me fold the clothes, make a bed, make dinner tonight, help with dishes? And for a long time in my relationship with my wife, I was pretty stingy, and I would just say, nope, because I didn't want to, right? But the reality is I began to realize that every time I said nope, I missed out on being able to serve my wife, to honor my wife, to help my wife. And while my wife gives me the freedom to say yes or no based on what's going on in my life, the truth of the matter is the more times I say yes, the more times it means something valuable to my wife. Second uh, Corinthians says this, remember, remember this, 
Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to God, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And if God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Isn't that what we want? We want to abound in every good work. Whatever we put our hands to, whatever we put our minds to, we want our life to flourish. But let me say this for a second. Any relationship that the priority is about taking rather than giving, that relationship begins to fade. Whether you're dating someone, or whether you're working somewhere, whether you're a part of a church, the reality is none of us really want to be stingy. We want to be generous, abounding in our own lives. And so when we talk about giving of ourselves, we talk about our time, our talent, and our treasure. And oftentimes we pick kind of one or the other, but the reality is God wants to see all three flourish. But this passage specifically is maybe one of the more difficult things to swallow as, as a person with a heart transplant is, am I generous to God specifically through this picture, and finances. Friends, many of us will say, I, I, I can't give. The reality is this. If we are consuming and trying to save and spend, but we have little or nothing left and can never seem to get ahead, greed has probably won the day. Something about our life, about keeping our comfort and our priorities and our preferences have boxed us in so that we can't pour out a chance to serve or to give of ourselves. And I just want to caution you. This new heart needs to be protected and guarded, and you need to flourish. You need it to flourish. Where's a good place to live out generosity? I want to challenge you to live out generosity here with us in the church whether it's through our, our foster family Christmas open house where maybe you're going to make cookies or you're going to come serve families. Or maybe you've already gone to the next step kiosk and you picked up one of those cards to buy a gift card. We want to be an active part of serving and giving. And let me just say, maybe it's our Christmas offering. Maybe it's your chance to start giving through the local church to bless the mission of Jesus through us. But friends, if you find yourself fighting, giving of yourself, the only way to beat that is to start developing a habit of generosity. Last of all, we want to talk about jealousy. Jealousy is the final chart, and I call this one the Widowmaker because it is the grand rebellion of all. It's the direct conversation of our hurt towards God. And sometimes we look at the world around us and we think, God, you owe me. Because what we see is uh, people living a life that we don't think should be blessed, but they seem to be flourishing or being very successful. And so in the frustration of our hearts, we push away from God and say, God, why didn't that happen for me? That's not who we want to be. Think about this in the moment. Think about your last fight or conversation or disagreement or a crisis or conflict. When you look at your heart and you were so wronged, did you enter that conversation 
with their best intent or God's best intent? Or did you live in a posture of self? Did you find yourself trying to win for your honor, for your reputation, for your credit? This one's really hard to swallow. But read this passage with me, friends. James 4 says this. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve and mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. The habit that helps us conquer jealousy before God is humility. Giving our concerns to God. What James describes literally in this, in this passage is for us to, to push away the things of evil, to pull close to God himself, and to take a posture of repentance that, God, I have wronged you. And it should, it should create a heart change, a repentance, a different posture in who we are so that we literally kneel before God instead of stand before God. And he will lift us up. We need to learn to desire God himself and not the stuff of God. Even those who seem to have a better life will tell you it's not as green as you think. Ultimately, we get over-concerned about what we don't have and don't push back to recognize all that we do have. So where's a good place to put this into practice? I think it's in worship. It's in our time together for us to humble ourselves before God and each other, whether we pause to pray, whether we eat the bread and drink the juice of communion where we're reminded of the death, the burial, and the resurrection. But in these moments, as we respond in our life of worship back to God, reading his word, responding to his word, what we say is, God, we trust you, your will, your way, above our will, our way. And we humble our life to follow after him. Humility is the antidote to selfishness, isn't it? We won't be double-minded. We'll actually be clear-founded in who God has called us to be. So let me, let me summarize these enemies and give you, first and foremost, the antidote that trumps these enemies. Let me remind you with this. Confession is greater than guilt. Find a group of people to connect with, to share your journey and your struggle with. Forgiveness Forgiveness will always be greater than, than anger. And if we can ask for forgiveness and we can grant forgiveness, we will see this heart begin to thrive. Generosity is greater than greed. If we can begin to pour ourselves out of our time, talent, and treasure, we'll see God work through our greed. But last of all, we must be rooted in humility to be the kind of people that stand before God or better yet, kneel before God understanding who he has called us to be and how his life might change us. Friends, who might we become if we allowed the power of Jesus to transform our heart and the breath of his spirit to begin to give us new life? 
What would it look like for us if we would confess our sin and shame that has us pinned down? Could we be, could we find a group of people that raise us up before God and help us grow in his likeness? What would happen if we would learn how to forgive the person that's wounded us? Would we be able to speak these words, I forgive you and find new life? What if we could be generous? If we'd quit holding back and giving all the excuses, why not to give of ourselves and our time and our talent and our treasure? Might we see the mission of God flourish even through our lives and our home and our walk? What would it look, for like, us, look like it for us to be humble, to be the kind of people that would humble ourselves before God and allow him to transform us? Let's move to our time of response. Friends, I, I, I brought a prop with us today. Uh, and this is a, as you can see, it's a, it's a teddy bear. I don't know if you realize this, but when somebody has an open heart surgery or a heart transplant, uh, there is a deep wound that is created in their chest so that they can do the surgery that's needed and recover the way they're intended. But with all that deep surgery into the chest, breathing, coughing, laughing becomes extremely painful. And if you don't continue to laugh and cough and breathe deeply, the breath of God doesn't give a chance for the body to, to heal properly. So a hospital will give you a, a teddy bear, a teddy bear that oftentimes they, they call Sir Cough-A-Lot. Yeah, there's actually a name, look it up on Google, Sir Cough-A-Lot. And the teddy bear is a gift from the hospital so that when somebody who has had open heart surgery begins to feel the pressure or the pain of maybe laughing or coughing or just even breathing, they take this teddy bear and they pull it close and they squeeze it tight. The concept is called counter pressure. That pain is a natural part of the process of healing. But you can, by grabbing sarcophalot, pressing him against your chest and creating pressure on your chest as you breathe deeply, as you cough, as you laugh, it eases the pain. Isn't that crazy? Most of us think that when the pain arrives, we should, we should pull away. But your doctor, your physician will tell you, embrace it, hold it tight, and allow Sir Cough-a-Lot to help you on the path towards healing. Friends, here's my gift to you today. We're given something more powerful than sarcophalot. We're actually given God's spirit. That when God gives us a new heart because of the work that he did on the cross, his death, his burial, his resurrection, the forgiveness of sins and life everlasting, when Jesus takes out our sinful broken heart and puts in his pure and righteous heart, there's gonna be tenderness. There's gonna be woundedness. But I wanna encourage you to grab on to God, to hold closely. And when it hurts to laugh, when it hurts to cough, when it even hurts to breathe, pull God closer and allow God to heal us all. Let's pray. God, Thank you for this series, Enemies of the Heart. And God, forgive us because our lives have been toxic. We have lived a life that has been in rebellion to you. 
God, help us to not let that rebellion take hold in our relationships around us or the world that we're a part of us. God, help us to breathe deeply your spirit, to desire to read your word, to confess before you on a regular basis in our prayer life, the growth that we need to pursue. And God, help us to live out that relationship with you and the people around us. God, as we get ready to respond in worship, God, would you lead us? Lead us to our response. And may today be a demarcation of a new life, of trusting you above all, protecting our heart, so that our hearts will flourish, surrendered before you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.